it down at home. I've got my chair here because I think this is how we, the posture that we take when we're, we're unimpressed with something. And we sit back and we think, oh, the thing about church is Jesus, well, he's an okay kind of a guy, but mom and dad keep dragging me to church. What is it with church? It's just, oh, there's no one there for me. Or maybe we say, oh, the thing about church is, well, I just love the music in our last place. The lights, the sound, the quality, the microphones, they always worked. It was just brilliant. I can't play guitar here. It's just not the same. I can't do it. Or perhaps we say, well, the thing about church is, well, the way we used to run our children's club, it was just unbeatable. It was unbeatable. It was so good. And now... There's just no point trying. It's not the same anymore. We couldn't possibly do it. Or, oh, the thing about church is the Bible is just so hard to apply to our modern world. It just, it just doesn't marry up. We should just give up. There's, there's no point, really, trying, is there? And we sit in our nostalgic chair of despondency, and we give up. We give up. Oh, church. It's unimpressive, isn't it? Sometimes it's unimpressive. We can compare it so unfavorably with the past, and in so doing, we can decide to give up putting much effort in in the present. And if that has ever been you, or is you right now, then this sermon is most definitely for you. And if that's not you right now, well, I can tell you that it probably will be, or certainly will be at some point in the future. You see, that was the situation in Haggai's day as well. Not with the church as a group of people, but with the actual physical building of the temple. You see, firstly, the people compared this physical shell of a building with what, with what had gone before. Have a look down with me at verse 3. The word of the Lord, verse 2, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, to the remnant of the people, and asked them, verse 3, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Who saw this house in its former glory? Now, if anybody had seen the former temple in its former glory, they'd have to be doing quite well, because it was about 60 years or so before this that the temple had been destroyed. But perhaps there were one or two people who had seen the temple in its former glory. And you see, Solomon's temple was glorious. There's no doubt about it. We can read about how it was built and the materials they used and the dimensions that they used. It was a magnificent building, resplendent in gold and silver and bronze with tall cedars of Lebanon. It was quite spectacular. And the comparison to the present is unimpressive for the people. See how Haggai continues, verse 3b. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Does it not seem to you like nothing? I suppose it was more or less literally as nothing. There perhaps were a few stones put back on top of each other. They've only been building for about a month or rebuilding for about a month or so since the last uh, prophecy of Haggai in chapter 1. But it's far from a finished building. It's unimpressive. 
And moreover, remember that at this time, the people are living in their booths, in their temporary structures. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And it reminds them of how their ancestors had lived, but also of how the temple was preceded by that mobile tabernacle like we thought about. But now they don't even have a tabernacle. They've just got a heap of stones in the middle of the city. And what's more, as they dwell on the former house and its glory, they remember that it was during this very festival that Solomon's magnificent temple was dedicated and consecrated. Wow! But look at this. A heap of stones. A few timbers. How depressing. I wonder if you noticed that uh, the people's observation about the state of the temple isn't corrected by God, is it? He doesn't say, oh, come on now. It's better than you think. He doesn't say, oh, you made some real progress last week. Okay, chin up, positive mental attitude. You're looking at it glass half empty. He doesn't say, oh, come on now. Look at that heap of stones. They're, they're just, it's just a beautiful heap of stones. Look at them. They're just, they're just shining in the sunlight. They're amazing. He, if anything, God agrees with their assessment of the situation. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Nothing. And yet, it's not a reason for the people to stop building, to hang up their tools and to panel their own homes instead. Rather, the instruction comes in verse 4, doesn't it? But now, be strong and work. Be strong and work. Three times the same command comes in verse 4. Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel, you leader. Be strong, Joshua, the priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. All you who are building. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And work. Get on with it. Get your hands dirty. Get, it, get going. And the third command, the end of verse uh, 5, do not fear. Do not fear. Don't give up, in other words. Don't give up, but work. Be strong. Don't fear. And you know it's the same for us. This world isn't all rosy. The church in our nation isn't in rude health. Christchurch Harpenden has its problems and issues. And an honest evaluation of our fellowship together is likely to find us wanting in a number of ways and areas. Because church is often unimpressive. It's too easy to compare the present unfavorably with the past, here or elsewhere, and to give up as a result. So what should we do? Should we resign ourselves to that uh, eventuality? Should we sit back in the chair of despondent nostalgia and dream of better days? No. The call from the book of Haggai is to be strong and work and not to fear. And you'll see where we're going for the rest of this evening on the handout. If you've got one of those in front of you, you turn it over, you might see, and that might help you uh, guide, guide you through uh, the rest of this evening. We're just going to see two things. Because how will we be strong and work and not fear? How would the people be strong in the Lord? How would they work? How would they not fear? Well, Haggai has two suggestions for us. And the first is this. Look up to the Lord Almighty. In verses 4 and 5. You know how it is when you go to the opticians and they place the lenses in front of your eyes 
and they flick the lever and they say, better or worse, better or worse, better or worse. Maybe some of you don't have to have that experience of going to the opticians. You can just, you know, flip your glasses up and down and uh, work out which is better and which is worse. Well, God invites the people to see things through a new set of lenses, if you like, to see things differently from his perspective. Notice how God starts verse 4, but now, and if you remember, verse 3, he's already asked them a question, does it not seem to you, or sorry, how does it look to you now? There's a contrast, right? The now as the people see it, now it looks unimpressive, looks like a heap of stones, it looks like nothing. But now, says God, verse 4, but now, it's different. Why? Well, because of three things, three Ps. The first is his presence. Look up to the Lord Almighty and see his presence. For now, be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, be strong, all you people of the Lord, and work for I am with you. Now, we spent some time considering the weight of those words last week. But note again that here it is the Lord Almighty who says this, the Lord of hosts, the commander of heavenly armies, the general of this universe. In his might and power, he says, I am with you. I'm with you. Moreover, his presence isn't something that he's just rustled up to calm, frayed Israelite nerves. No, he says, this, is, this, this presence is the result of his promise the second P, his promise. How does he continue? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. You see, God had promised his people when he had brought them through the Red Sea, out of Egypt, out of slavery. I am with you. He said, I will be with you. He promised that. Remember the relevance of that reminder during the Feast of Tabernacles, that very festival when they are reminding and reenacting the people's escape from Egypt. And here Haggai refers to that, doesn't he? I promised you. I promised you I'd be with you. And here I am with you. I am with you. And thirdly, God speaks of his power. His power. Verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Last week we saw at the end of chapter 1 that the Lord stirs up the spirits of the people as they come to work on his house. And here he says and promises the presence of his spirit among the people. The spirit of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the general of the universe. So yes, whilst there might have been reason to miss the glorious nature and the glorious house of the past, God encourages the people to look up. Look up and see him, to see his presence, to see his promise, to see his power, and so to work, and to be strong, and to take courage. And you know, I think that's tremendously helpful for us, because how easy it is to get despondent about church life when we look only on the horizontal, when we look like this. And that's not a slight against any of you, by the way. But it is, it is, it's difficult, isn't it? We look around on the horizontal and it's easy to get despondent and discouraged because things are unimpressive. When we start to count the number of people at the prayer meeting or the number of people at our home group or the struggle it is to find people to serve in the youth team or teach in your YPAC class or whatever it is, it can be disappointing. 
we can fall into the chair of nostalgic despondency and think, oh, just give up. Isn't it interesting? God doesn't minimize those difficulties or those problems. He doesn't say glibly, it's okay, don't worry about it. No, he does something far better. He directs our gaze to him. And he reminds us of who really is doing the work and who we really are working for. And he urges us to look up and to see him, the Lord Almighty who has covenanted with his people to be with them, who has sent his spirit among them. And if that were true for the people of Haggai's day as they built the temple, how much more true is it for us today? Us who have the spirit not just amongst us, but in us. Us who have the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28, like we thought about last time. Go and make disciples, says Jesus, and surely, surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it's that very end of the age that Haggai moves on to in in this passage, in this prophecy. It's that future focus that is the second motivation here too. Because God urges the people not just to look up, but also to look on. Look forward to the future, verses 6 to 9. Notice that the, the, focus, the focus of these verses is undeniably um, future-focused. The tense shifts to the future. Five times God says, I will, or the house will, in these verses. And there's some key phrases here, too, which are often found in Old Testament prophecy, which denote the end times, denote something in the future. In a little while, says the prophet Haggai. Um, once more, he says, shake the nations, he says. Speaks of the creation's response to the creator when he comes to earth. And these future events are linked to the people's present situation. It's actually missing in the NIV uh, translation at the beginning of verse 6, but the first word in Hebrew is key, tiny word. It just means for. It's actually quite a helpful word because it links all that we've looked at so far, to these things that God is going to do in the future. For, do not fear, for, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what I will do, he says. What will he do? Well, in summary form, he will bring about a future of riches, glory, and peace. Those ideas are repeated through these few verses, and we'll see that in just a moment. On Thursday, I was uh, walking through Harpenden, And I walked past a mum with a pram and a little boy walking next to her. And as I walked past, I heard their conversation in in brief. And the little boy said, I assume it was his mother, said, when I'm older, I'm going to get a wife. And the mum tutted and rolled her eyes and said, get a wife. And he said, and then I'll get some children, he said. (laughs) And then he said, but before I do that, I'm going to get loads of money. And the mum laughed, and I laughed, and rounded the corner. Quite incredible. You see, what is he seeking there? He's seeking riches, and he's seeking glory. What is glory? Glory is significance, weightiness, isn't it? And you know, that little boy in the centre of Harbden is no different to hundreds, thousands, millions of little boys all across this world. It's the heartbeat of our world, isn't it? Even if they don't articulate it quite like that. Riches and glory. Riches and glory. 
riches and significance in my life. That's what they're looking for. That's what people are looking for. That's what our hearts often look for, aren't they? Well, you see, these verses speak of a future of riches and glory. And they're far greater than the riches and glory that that little boy was thinking of. For his riches and glory, riches and glory will fade away. But not so with these riches and this glory. Let's see these ideas repeated a few times. Firstly, riches. Verse uh, um, uh, 7. I will shake all nations. The response of, of the world to the Lord coming to his, his, his creation, the creator to his creation. And what is desired by all nations will come. Now that word desired could be translated treasures. The treasures of all nations will come. It's a picture of riches. Riches brought by all the nations into Israel, into the temple. Think about the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember that as the people left Egypt, what did they do? They plundered the Egyptians and took with them treasure. Think about the Temple of Solomon. And remember that what happened? Well, the Queen of Sheba brought many expensive riches to furnish Solomon's temple. Think about in the future from Haggai's day, think about how this prophecy is fulfilled in, the very, in this very period in the book of Ezra when, we, when we're told that the Persian King Darius personally pays for the restoration or the rebuilding of some of the temple. And Ezra, when he comes to Jerusalem, he comes with him, uh, with him he takes about 80 million pounds worth of gold from the Persian treasury, the nations and their treasure coming. But of course, all of that is nothing, is it? When we consider the picture of Revelation and all peoples and nations and tribes and tongues gathering around the the throne of the Lamb and casting down their crowns before him. Riches. It's a vision of riches. Secondly, glory. And I will fill this house with glory. Verse 7, says the Lord Almighty. Glory is weightiness, okay? And this house is to be filled with glory. The weighty presence and might and power of the Lord. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. If it's his, he can bring it in from all the nations. Riches, we're back to the idea of riches again, aren't we? And it also reminds the people in their despondency that humans in their work cannot enrich God. They can't do something for him. All they can do is simply acknowledge his richness and his glory in their work for him. Back to glory, verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. We have a, a promise of greater glory. The weightiness, the significance, the extent of this house, the glory of this house will be greater. God will achieve far greater things through this future house to come than he has through the former house. And of course, we think through the gospel of that good news of God going to all nations. The extent, the glory, the significance being widened, widened, widened. Riches, glory, riches, glory. And finally, in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, the riches and the glory culminate in peace. It will be a rich place because it will be a place of peace. It will be a glorious place because it will be a place of peace. Place be- a peace between man and God. Peace between men. Peace. Think about that feeling when you sink into a chair at the end of a hectic day. 
Oh, peace, he said. Or you sit down on a holiday, quiet countryside, peace. Well, think of that moment and multiply it by a million and you're not even close to this future of peace. Riches, glory, riches, glory, peace. This is the future God paints for the people. And this is the future that God paints for you and I too. A physical future of great riches, of real glory, real significance, weightiness, and peace, eternal peace. Just think about it. These are the things people spend their whole lives chasing, aren't they? The decisions people make to get more money. The situations they place themselves in to feel significance, to feel significant and weighty. Like they mean something. I was speaking to a nanny this week in Harpenden who says she's only slept in her own home for one week since Christmas because the family that she nannies for in Harpenden, both parents work full-time in high-powered jobs. And so for coming up three months, there are parents who are chasing riches and glory. They hardly see their own children. Alter, grab those parents and bring them to these verses and say to them, God would have you know that these are yours. This riches and this glory that you chase is yours. And it's there for free. And the price has been paid on the cross. And by grace, he's prepared a room for you in his house. A room of riches and glory and peace. You're welcome. All you need to do is believe. You don't need to try and grab it all here and now. Well, on the 21st day of the seventh month, Approximately 550 years after Haggai spoke here, another man stood up in Jerusalem. Another man, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he spoke. And this is how John records it. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You see, ultimately we find the fulfillment to these prophecies in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who meets our deepest needs. He is the spiritual drink that we all need need and must take in order that we are satisfied. He is the assurance of God's presence. It's his spirit which he has left here on earth that we might be his witnesses. It's the promise of his return that we earnestly wait for. His return that will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, far richer than our world now, far more glorious than our world now, a world full of peace. If you don't know that for yourself this evening, then stop chasing riches and significance here on earth and come to Jesus, who offers rivers of living water inside of you forever. If you do know this future as your future, and you do know Jesus as your saviour, then still perhaps we need to think, don't chase riches and glory here on earth. Wait for them in heaven. And while you wait... Use the riches that you have to build his church, to reach out with the good news, to grow the kingdom. Even when it's unimpressive, perhaps especially when it is so, 
The call is to rouse yourself from your chair of nostalgic despondency and work to bust a gut for the kingdom, to get sore knees and dirty hands building each other up, to go to Ebenezer Luton and be strong in the Lord, to make sacrifices for him and his house willingly, and not to fear about it. Because I am with you, says the Lord Jesus. I've given you my spirit, says the Lord Jesus. And I will return to usher in a world so much more glorious that from the perspective of eternity, your struggles and hardships and labors here are light and momentary compared to that glory, that weight of glory that is to be revealed. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, you remnant of the people. Be strong, Christchurch Harbinen. Be strong, Ebenezer Luton. Be strong and work. And do not fear. For God's presence, his promise, and his power are with you. True riches, glory, and peace are yet to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we admit before you that often when we look around and our eyes are lowered, we are despondent about your church. Lift our gaze to see you, the Lord Almighty, who sits on his throne. Lift our gaze to see your promise to be with us, to see your presence with us, to see your power at work in us, and lift our gaze to look forward to a future of riches, glory, and peace. And as we do that, may we find the motivation we need to build your church, to build one another up, to reach out with the glorious gospel, good news of a Jesus who says, come and drink. Pray that you might work in us and through us for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to come now.